The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome to our Rethinking Democracy in an Age of Pandemic. Uh, we've got five workshops over the next five weeks. And the first workshop today is our Nations and Borders. Um, it really is a pleasure to welcome you all uh, this afternoon, those of you in the Zoom room and those of you who are join, joining us through our um, Facebook uh, uh, live stream. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub and I just want to say I'm delighted on behalf of the Trinity Long Room Hub but we're actually doing this in partnership with our collaborators and colleagues at Columbia University and I would like to introduce uh, my counterpart at Columbia, uh, Professor Eileen uh, Galuli who um, is joining us also from New York uh, this morning, this afternoon. Uh, Eileen is the director of the Society uh, uh, Fellows and the Heyman Center at Columbia. And it really is a privilege uh, to be doing this in partnership uh, with you, Eileen. And thank you very much indeed. Uh, Eileen will be chairing uh, next week's uh, session. Uh, and she also might be chairing today's if my internet uh, doesn't behave itself, but hopefully it will. We have been having uh, some technical uh, issues. Anyway, in our Zoom room, we have colleagues from Trinity, from Columbia, from the universities of Sao Paulo, Virginia, Bielestock, Utrecht, um, JNU in Delhi, and Ambedkar University uh, in Delhi as well, and many more. We're joined by journalists, authors, arts practitioners, as well as representatives from the world of policymaking, uh, enterprise, civic society, and cultural uh, organizations. So it really is fabulous that uh, uh, you are with us this afternoon, this morning. Um, and to those of you who are on Facebook, also thank you very much for joining us. This is, as I said a moment ago, the first of a special five-part workshop series, uh, which the Hub and the Heyman have organized in response to COVID-19. Um, but it comes out of a much longer established partnership between the two institutions um, and out particularly of an 18-month humanities initiative on the crisis of democracy and cultural trauma that was funded by the Consortium of Humanities Centres and Institutes and the uh, Mellon Foundation. Uh, so it's a, it's a very well-established uh, relationship and uh, with Columbia and other colleagues who were involved uh, in that Global Humanities Institute, we have also now just applied for a European Horizon 2020 funded project on participatory and deliberative democracy. And some of uh, the partners who are involved in that are also with us this afternoon. So thank you, um, uh, anyone uh, from the GHI and from Isagoria, as the new um, initiative is called. It's, again, delighted you could be with us this afternoon. So in a nutshell, um, what does COVID-19 mean for democracy in the world today? Uh, we're all very, very conscious that uh, measures have been introduced to 
protect people from COVID-19. However, obviously we need to be hugely vigilant at a moment like this and we need to think about the long-term implications of these measures, but also to think about uh, everyone who is experiencing the pandemic uh, very, very uh, differently. And today our focus will be on uh, nations and borders. Um, But before I hand over to our moderator, um, uh, Susan McKay, I I just want to explain or say a word about a survey that has just been um, shared with you. At the end of this workshop or during it, if it's easier, we would love you to take a moment to reflect on what you've heard and and let us know what you think. Um, And also, to think a little bit about what else we can do as part of this five week long set of workshops. We'll share a link to this survey via email after the workshop as well. All right, a quick word about the format today. Um, Basically, it's a panel discussion uh, with an expert moderator and two invited speakers who We'll speak for up to 15 minutes, um, certainly not longer than that. Uh, And then our moderator uh, will respond, uh, add uh, her own thoughts and really open up the discussion. We're very, very keen for as many people as possible to um, participate. Because we are having technical issues here in Ireland, uh, we've got a a very um, messy storm out there and um, uh, some of the the Wi-Fi networks have been acting up in the past couple of days. What we'd like you to do is to submit your questions through the Q&A function on the screen. And uh, I'll read them out for the panel when we get to them. Uh, So please think about those questions and um, uh, I'll read them out. As you ask a question, it's really helpful if you just say a word or two about who you are uh, and and your background. Uh, We're also, there are many in the room who of course in especially what we're talking about this afternoon and uh, we may call on you if needed. If this happens, Francesca will invite you to unmute yourself and if it's a longer discussion we'll bring you into the virtual panel. Um, We're also uh, tweeting this afternoon so um, those of you who are tweeters please use the handles at the club at I am not sure if I'm supposed to take over at this point. Is that right? <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, we're tweeting, as Jane said, um, and the uh, though I'm not sure I know the hashtag. Is it um, um, Ellie? Could you could you pop in here? Okay, and she'll share that with you. Uh, It's at TLR Hub and at SOF Heyman, it's H-E-Y-M-A-N. So uh, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to introduce Susan McKay, who's our moderator and and will be participating herself in this panel, and then she'll introduce the other two speakers. Susan McKay is a writer and journalist from Derry in Northern Ireland, for those of you who don't know. Um, She is currently writing a sequel to her book, 
Northern Protestants and unsettled people and working on another project, another book project called Outside in the Navy Dark, which is a book about borders. So Susan, thank you. And I'll hand it over to you. Hope you'll be able to come back. Um, I just uh, want to say hello to everybody, first of all, and just to, uh, to say, yes, we do have some uh, seriously windy weather here in Ireland at the moment. So I hope I managed to last for the entirety of, of this fascinating seminar. Uh, we've got two really brilliant and distinguished um, speakers uh, coming up. Um, and I'm going to introduce them and just let you know that uh, Etain uh, Tanum and Sarah Stillman will each speak for about um, 10 or 15 minutes and then we'll have a conversation and gradually we'll bring the rest of you into that as much as we possibly can. So <clears throat> Etain is going to speak first. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll introduce both of our speakers and then we'll go to Etain. Uh, Etain is the Associate Professor of International Peace Studies at Trinity College Dublin and her main expertise is in the Irish and Northern Irish cross-border cooperation and British-Irish cooperation and with a special emphasis on Brexit's impact. Remember Brexit, how much fun that used to be. Um, she's currently writing a book, British-Irish Relations in the 21st Century, and that's going to be coming out soon with Oxford University Press. And she's contributed to numerous reports about Brexit, including reports from the European Parliament, the Juris Committee, the House of Commons, Select Committee for Northern Ireland, and the House of Lords Brexit Inquiry. She's also appeared in uh, all kinds of broadcasting forums, and she's the author of other books, including International Intervention in Ethnic Conflict, Comparison of the European Union and the United Nations, which came out in 2014, and Cross-Border Cooperation in Ireland in 1999. And she's also been published in various books and international journals. Um, Sarah Stillman uh, is joining us from New York. Sarah is a staff writer at The New Yorker. She's former director of the Global Migration Project at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. And her work has received the National Magazine Award, the Michael Kelly Award for, quote, the fearless pursuit and expression of truth. Also, the Overseas Press Club's Joe and Laurie Dine Award for international human rights reporting and the Hillman Prize for magazine journalism. Her coverage of America's wars overseas and the challenges facing soldiers at home has appeared in The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Nation and The New Republic, Slate.com and Atlantic.com. She was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2016 and was very recently elected to the Irish, uh, to, sorry, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So uh, welcome to both Etienne and Sarah, both uh, with amazing expertise to offer us here. So Etienne, would you like to make a start and talk for 10 or 15 minutes? Thank you, Susan. And thank you to Jane and to Eileen for inviting me uh, to speak today. And um, really, um, I'm honoured and I'm, I feel very honoured to be speaking with Sarah, who is just amazingly accomplished at such a young age and such high achievements. So uh, it's, it's great for me and Susan as well, because I followed her work. Uh, we've only met briefly once before, um, but it, it's really an honour for me. And I want to thank Jane, uh, especially for being so inclusive and, and so wonderful for the Long Room Hub in Trinity um, over the years. 
Um, so yeah, we really in Northern Ireland and Ireland, we've lurched from crisis to crisis. So recently, so looking at the implications of um, the virus for democracy, in one way, well, it's not perhaps compared to some areas not so destabilizing. We we can't be scaremongers, but in a, in another way, it has brought out some of the negative tendencies in our democracies in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. Um, I think a lot of attention gets paid to Northern Ireland because of the history of the conflict and because of its post-conflict status. But I think the virus has also brought out some tendencies in Ireland, which you know are not always as positive either. Um, I know that Jane was, you know, has told me it's an international audience. So just a little bit of context about Ireland and Northern Ireland and the recent past before speaking specifically about the virus. Um, probably as most people know, and as Susan uh, alluded to, um, a lot of my work is about Brexit, but Brexit has been a hugely dominant environment for the UK um, and for Ireland, for Northern Ireland um, in the past years. And we've gone really in Ireland from austerity and economic uh, issues and crises to Brexit and now to this. And the main issue for Northern Ireland is that a majority voted to stay in the EU, but the UK voted to leave, as we all know. And it was 56% voted to stay in the EU, but a majority of Catholics, 85% of Catholics voted to stay in the EU. So very quickly, um, that became politicised um, early on. And I'm sure most people are familiar through the media with the coverage of that and with the issues very quickly after that there was a call for a border poll on unification um, and it came from Sinn Féin, the Nationalist Party, but even Irish parties mentioned it down in Dublin, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, although they stopped doing that very quickly and, and became very sensitive to the issues in Northern Ireland around that. But it really brought back an issue which had been parked and the Good Friday Agreement had you know, resolved many of these issues around identity and the territorial border a majority of people in Northern Ireland were and are happy with existing arrangements, but Brexit just really ignited that issue again about should there be a united Ireland. So I think that's the first important context. Coinciding with that for different reasons, really not related to Brexit, the executive in Northern Ireland, the devolved part sharing government, collapsed in January 2017 and only just was resumed in January 2020 when the uh, virus hit. So um, that has been obviously a, a source of tension as well in Northern Ireland. Um, and again, what happened, I would argue, and, and the main issue about the responses to the virus is that it emphasized that Northern Ireland was part of the UK and that Ireland was a different jurisdiction and that there were different policy responses, which very quickly became politicized in Northern Ireland as well, just as Brexit polarized opinion. So the virus in itself, I mean, I haven't mentioned, and I hope it's, it's so obvious that the main horribleness of it is the lives that are lost and trying to find a way of minimizing that across jurisdictions for everyone um, is the main issue. But in doing that, obviously there isn't a consensus and very, uh, the British government followed its herd immunity approach. It explicitly said it wasn't following the World Health Organization response initially. The Irish government immediately followed the World Health advice, um, including um, not only the lockdown and, and complete sort of lockdown quite quickly, um, but also contact tracing and testing, maximum testing, 
the British government um, didn't have a lockdown as quickly. It did relatively quickly after that, probably two weeks after, I'm trying to remember the time frame. Um, but it didn't engage in the same um, W World Health, the World Health um, three strands approach, to, to use that phrase, um, to dealing with the crisis. Um, and there are still differences. So, um, for example, in terms of testing, um, 8.69 per thousand um, on the 11th of April, that they're the last dates I have, were being tested per thousand in Ireland. In the UK, it was four per thousand. So there are still differences in policy that are quite significant, and also in terms of contact tracing, a different approach. So the, the, there are issues around that in terms of, firstly, um, a perception that the, a one-upmanship began to occur about, well, we're doing it the right way, and the UK is doing it the wrong way, and look at all the deaths they have. And there are more deaths currently. Um, it's 14.8, um, I hate using these statistics so coldly, 14.8 deaths um, per 100,000 in the UK and 6.5 in Ireland. So there are differences currently, but many, including um, um, you know, various experts, um, and just found one, Professor Hange, that's the right pronunciation in Harvard, has argued it's too early to tell in the long term the effects of each policy and, and, and how it's all going to pan out. Um, but the issue is around that, um, that it was quickly politicised in Northern Ireland that very quickly, and I think across the board in the Northern Ireland Executive, there was some criticism of how it was managed in that um, Sinn Féin very quickly said that an all-island approach was required, but didn't consult with their partners in the power-sharing executive before doing that. So it wasn't so much the opinion, but the management of it that was criticised. And it caused very quickly, having just restored the executive, a lot of division, a lot of heated rhetoric, um, and a lot of um, the old, again, political divides returning, which Brexit had already raised. So in that sense, totally unrelated to a public health issue, but it became very much part of the Northern Ireland context again and, and of division. Um, and even in Ireland, there was a tendency, I suppose, to, to very sort of at times a, a sense of, um, or at least it was perceived by some in Northern Ireland, um, a sense of praising ourselves for having the right approach and the UK for having the wrong one. Now, in this context, it was understandable in many ways because early on, and, and I think the British government more or less admitted this, there were mistakes made. And I think that they implicitly, if not explicitly, one of the ministers did mention that. But the issue is that in itself, the crisis not only was a public health one, in the context of Ireland and Northern Ireland, it led to polarisation in Northern Ireland again, it led to the border issue again becoming an issue um, where the argument was we need an all-island approach and that, once Sinn Féin said it explicitly, became a, a sort of target then for unionists to say, no, you're just saying that because you want a united Ireland. So it became politicised away from the functional need of, of preserving lives. Um, and in Ireland, um, obviously not like that, but at the same time, it did become an issue that was linked to stereotypes and um, of what we are and of, of our own policies in some quarters, which was not extreme, but because of the sensitivities in Northern Ireland, I think it was perceived sometimes negatively. 
um, that, that there was a one-upmanship going on. I wouldn't stress that too much um, because I, I think it was, you know, really very often we're just reporting the figures and Britain is our nearest neighbour and we're sharing a border with Northern Ireland. So there was some concern that by having different policies, we were going to suffer more on the other side of the border um, if there were limitations to the policy being followed in Northern Ireland. Um, but nevertheless, it did really cause all these sensitivities to return. So in terms of democracy, crisis of democracy, um, I would not call it that as such, but it has been a hugely um, negative psychological um, issue that should really be a public health issue about saving lives, but definitely in the context of Northern Ireland has become more than that and has become part of the old political debate about unification. Um, and in, you know, again, not so it wouldn't be the case in Ireland as much, but on the other hand, Sinn Féin is an all-island party and did very well in the last election, the last general election in Ireland. So as I started off by saying, we have gone from crisis to crisis here. This crisis is obviously the biggest, um, the, a worldwide pandemic, pandemic that is um, appalling. But what we see in these crises in Ireland and Northern Ireland is how quickly in Northern Ireland, something which one would imagine should not be connected to political ideological issues, very quickly became connected to them. So that's where I'll end. Thank you. Into hearing from Sarah now, and then we'll have a conversation between the two of you. So Sarah, would you like to take over? Yeah, thank you so much, Susan. And thank you, Etienne. It's fascinating to hear about the politicization, politicization in your context, because I'd love to speak to something um, quite in, in the US. Um, and thank you to Jane and, and Eileen and everyone who orchestrated this conversation amidst uh, a big storm over there. So um, yeah, when I got the email regarding this gathering, I was contemplating what I would say. And then about an hour later, uh, I got an email addressed to myself and to the president of my university and a number of my colleagues. Um, and it said, I'm just going to read you the first line. Sarah Stillman must be sued and supporting illegal immigrants. Um, and it went on to describe how, um, because I write about asylum seekers rights, and especially in the midst of this pandemic, um, it needed to be illuminated that uh, migrants were vectors of disease and crazy sex and were making too many babies that would bring problems to the US. And the email, I do get a decent amount of uh, hate mail of that sort for writing about the issues that I do. Um, but in the context of the pandemic, the email really made me think about um, the history of you know, how and where a lot of US immigration restriction policies come from, because the language of the note was just so reminiscent of many of the texts and debates I've read from uh, century around a lot of the first kind of anti-immigrant legislation the U.S. has seen. And so I've been thinking a lot in the midst of this moment about that history and about how it is that essentially throughout um, the entirety of U.S. immigration policy, you've seen this inextricable interweaving between kind of narratives of the threats that migrants pose and in particular uh, of the kind of dangers they allegedly present in regard to bringing disease um, and how racialized those concerns have always been about which populations we're concerned about. And certainly at this moment when, you know, in, in the US, we have a president who has 
referred to the virus consistently as the Chinese virus. And at a moment when I have Chinese American colleagues who are actually afraid walking down the streets of Brooklyn because they are actively being harassed and told to go home because they're endangering us. Um, it's just really made me think that I, I might start today but I just quickly kind of going through some of that history. Um, so I was looking back at the Chinese Exclusion Act, one of our first anti-immigrant policies, and um, I just want to quickly read um, from some of the debate that happened at that time. Um, it was uh, soon after there was a smallpox epidemic in San Francisco in 1887. Um, and I'm just going to read to you from a public health official in San Francisco at that time. Um, he stated that I unhesitatingly declare my belief that this cause, the Chinese population is the they're, they are the cause of this. And in the midst of our 300,000 Chinese people, they are unscrupulous, lying, and treacherous Chinamen who have disregarded our sanitation laws, concealed and are concealing their cases of smallpox. Um, and so um, what we saw emerge soon thereafter were these set of policies that essentially created a two-track immigration system and that was essentially the worthy immigrants and the unworthy immigrants those coming from western europe versus those who were coming from you know ireland italy um jewish immigrants and chinese immigrants um and i just was reading about ellis island's essential kind of two-track system whereby those who purchased a first class ticket managed to bypass a lot of the medical checks that others um, particularly uh, the Chinese were subject to. So all of that will probably sound a bit familiar. Um, so I want to flash forward uh, to this current moment and to the Trump administration, um, because the as you were describing the politicization of the virus um, in Ireland and the UK, um, it brought, certainly brought to mind um, some of what we're seeing here in terms of how um, the president's rhetoric has kind of essentially turn this into a uh, moment to effectuate a set of uh, anti-immigrant policies. Um, and what we've seen in the period between those early moments I just gestured towards um, the turn of the last century and this moment, we saw um, the US really buying into and helping to develop a set of asylum protections that have really been the norm for the last half century in the US. So. Um, you know, when it comes to 1951 Refugee Convention and the really robust set of protections we had around non-refoulement, the U.S. was really a beacon um, up until this administration of the idea that those who are fleeing countries where they genuinely fear for their lives um, will not and cannot legally be sent back to countries where they fear possible death. Um, and what we've seen in the context of this virus is that um, a lot of those protections that we spent the last half century building have been essentially thrown out the window. It hasn't actually gotten a lot of attention here because obviously there's so many facets to this crisis that um, I would argue some of the really subtle policy tweaks um, that have happened in the immigration context as a result of the pandemic could have very profound ramifications in the weeks and, and months ahead. So I just want to quickly enumerate a few of those um, very specific policy changes. Um, so one of the first things that we saw was um, the Trump administration used the Centers for Disease Control um, to put forth uh, these new regulations that essentially eviscerate the history I just mentioned of asylum seeker protections um, and essentially bypass what we have in both international and domestic law um, protecting migrants' rights um, by 
utilizing a old 1944 um, public health act that said they can essentially turn anyone away without asylum proceedings um, directly at the border and um, cease to hold um, what we would conventionally have as immigration hearings for those who may have a credible fear for um, fear for their lives. Um, and I think we also, I also wanted to point to the really profound kind of public health uh, crisis that's happening at the border as a result of some of the policies that were passed prior to the pandemic or some of the policies that were implemented. Um, so in the US, we've had something called the Migrant Protection Protocols. That was a slightly earlier step in trying to eviscerate asylum policy. And it essentially meant that um, asylum seekers who were appearing legally at our ports of entry and legally saying, you know, I would like to seek asylum were being told instead of entering the country as they normally would and waiting for their proceedings, they would have to be held in the equivalent of tent cities in some of the most dangerous cities in Mexico on the other side of the border and where they would wait um, for their proceedings in the US on the other side. And we were seeing migrants who were kidnapped, migrants who were sexually assaulted, uh, migrants who were facing a whole array of dangers prior to this pandemic. So you can only imagine um, what it looks like now when, um, just to quickly paint the picture for you, um, what we've seen in those tent cities is you know, people living in very cramped, cramped quarters, um, sleeping on the floor beside each other with very little access to um, health care and just to basic medical necessities or basic hygiene necessities. So I think there are some very serious concerns about what this pandemic could bring in that context um, and similarly in uh, refugee camps, I would argue, around the world. Um, and then certainly I wanted to bring up um, what we're seeing in the context of immigration detention as well. Um, they just put out models this week that say that if we, cur if we can follow the current course that we're on, somewhere between 70 and 99% of people who are in immigration detention at the moment um, will end up with COVID-19. Um, and so I think that takes me to the last point I wanted to touch upon, which is the way that this um, pandemic has made clear, uh, not just the questions we've been discussing thus far about international borders, um, but also the ways it's laid bare some of the internal borders that, um, that really separate who can be safe and who cannot. Um, so I've spent much of the past week talking to people who have loved ones in prisons and jails. And that's been you know, one of the borders that's come up in, in my mind is this set of people who, I, I've talked to many mothers who have children who are detained in juvenile detention facilities where the kids are being placed in solitary confinement, um, allegedly for their own protection. But you have children, you know, 13, 14 year olds sitting in cells 23 hours a day, uh, unable to go outside, unable to get an education. Um, and so I think it's when we talk about borders, certainly the literal ones are important, but I think um, this pandemic has made some of the ones that usually feel a little more abstract um, and figurative become much more literal. Um, and I think we've also seen that in the basic question of um, who's able to stay and who's able to go to somewhere that feels safer. So, you know, for instance, uh, the epicenter of the pandemic being New York City, um, we've seen you know large numbers of people, and I'll put myself in this category. I'm currently speaking to you from um, a beautiful island off the coast of Washington State, where my family lives, um, and so I decided to head out here. I know many New Yorkers who have uh, left the city, and um, certainly there are many who stay and face um, face a crisis that you know, continues in really troubling proportions. So. 
Um, those are just some of the borders that come to mind. And then the last one, um, as far as migration issues are concerned, is what this has revealed about um, the migrant populations that are so critical to our food supply chain. Um, some of you may have seen that Trump invoked um, a particular precedent here, um, the Defense Production Act, to essentially say workers in the poultry plants and slaughterhouses uh, have to keep doing their jobs. I've done a lot of interviews in uh, the poultry industry and have found that they specifically recruit migrant and uh, refugee labor there. And those are the people who are bearing much of the brunt of this. And so, so I think it's just really brought to the fore some of the ironies that this is the same population that's consistently getting raided by immigration authorities prior to the pandemic. Uh, I just even learned just this week of a case of a, a man who was rounded up in big raids that we had in Mississippi um, around uh, immigrants who were working in some of the poultry plants there. And this guy was rounded up in that raid. And now he has COVID-19 that he uh, got while he was in immigration detention at the very moment that the president's saying, suddenly for the first time, we, you know, we allegedly value these workers and we need them to stay in the production line. And it's one of the only realms where actually an immigration policy, we're not seeing more restrictions. We're seeing them, um, this administration who had wanted to start curbing some of the guest worker policies um, suddenly say that actually, you know, maybe we want these people to stay. Um, so those are just some of the contradictions that are coming to the fore in this moment in terms of US immigration policy. But I'd love to kind of transition us um, into the collective conversation here that some of you all are thinking about and continue attain to be great to be in dialogue about um, some of the overlap and some of the distinctions between what we're seeing in our mutual geographies. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sarah. That was also fascinating and so many links, obviously, with uh, some of the things that Attain was talking about in other contexts that are similar, both in Ireland and in the United Kingdom. Um, just to go to uh, attend to ask you maybe to reflect on um, the subject of the uh, people in uh, direct provision, as we call it in Ireland, you know, mm -hmm. where, where those internal borders have asserted themselves in Ireland, where, you know, in Ireland we have all our asylum seekers are crowded into what are called direct provision centres and very disturbing news has been coming out of quite a few of those recently they they tend to be run at enormous profit by private companies and uh, the facilities there are utterly unsuited to people in any case but certainly in a case where uh, social distancing is required and where there is a high risk of infection there are communal kitchens there are people staying in bunk beds in small rooms uh, you know there are there are no facilities for people to even wash uh, quite a lot of the time, let alone um, take all the other measures that people are being asked to take. So that's happening in Ireland as well, without very much attention being given to it, at home, isn't it? Yeah, no, I'd agree. Um, and I think one of the, you know, I think there's been different uh, periods to this, as we all know, um, in terms of our own reactions and the countries we're living in as well, because I think initially there was just shock. I, I know I was shocked when this all began. Um, and I think at the beginning in Ireland, there was a very, um, what was called resilient response. And, and there was that, I think, stereotype that often country people in countries can have about, we have such a great sense of community here, <laughs> as if no one else does. <laughs> and I think you can hear it again and again, you hear it, I hear it in every many countries. So there wasn't very much self-criticism, but I think everyone was very shocked 
essentially, uh, and there was that period. I think now, I agree, there isn't much attention being paid to the direct provision situation, but I do, and also nursing homes, because that's been a huge issue as well. Older people have been disproportionately hit by this, and there's been a question mark over why they weren't, nursing homes weren't being um, inspected, examined, and the staff trained, because they're not nurses. So they didn't necessarily have the same training in the hygiene aspects of dealing with this virus. Um, so there have been a lot of question marks over those two communities. When Sarah was talking about the internal borders within a society, that came to mind very much and direct provision. And I think you're right, Susan, there's been very little attention. There's more attention being paid at the moment to the nursing homes, very little to the situation of direct provision. Um, and the fact that some groups in society are far more at risk and, and far more exposed just by virtue of where they are in that society. So it's very similar. I can see the overlaps with Sarah very much with what you've been talking about, apart from the Northern Ireland case. So I think that, and that's partly what I was trying to get at too, that every country, and I think, you know, everyone has said this, and our Taoiseach has said it too, I think at some stage, that you cannot, you know, we can't get it perfectly right. Um, so the tendency to criticize others, I think is something that needs to be uh, I suppose limited um, and um, that we need to be aware of that um, in case again it becomes part of a nationalist rhetoric um, which at the extreme we hear with President Trump um, but you know where you, you sort of start praising yourself and, and, and by virtue of that criticizing others and it becomes slightly jingoistic um, and I don't think we've gone that far in Ireland but I do think there are issues where there are big problems and direct provision is a it's a human rights issue anyway but in this context um it's exposing very vulnerable people and also older people as, as another aspect um yeah one of the one of the other groups that um have said that they're receiving a lot of of hostility on a, on a, a racist level is the the travelers the irish travelers um i've seen women in particular talking about the way that um you know if there's a a traveller party at which people are seen to be not observing social distancing or whatever, the entirety of the traveller population is blamed by the local community. Whereas if there's a party in a settled housing estate or something, the whole of the settled community is not being blamed for that. So there is that sort of sense of people sort of, as you, you call it, jingoistically sort of communities kind of congratulating themselves, but very much sticking to their own you know, uh, giving themselves a clap on the back while scapegoating other mm -hmm. internal outsiders. Um, just in, in uh, to to Sarah to to talk to you about that. I mean, is that is that issue coming up in the US as well? That vulnerable populations, as well as you know, people who are seen as outsiders, just insider vulnerable communities, are also finding themselves scapegoated. Certainly. I mean, I think we've seen that um, partially just through the expression of some of the racist attacks I was describing mm -hmm. earlier to people of all different socioeconomic groups who may, you know, be identified as Asian and facing attacks on the street. Um, and then I, in a funny way, I have to add, though, that I think we've also seen an inversion of some of the conventional power dynamics, because I found it quite fascinating, you know, some of the Central American countries that we have been vociferously saying, like, do not come here, and the people who have been painted, for instance, um, 
as vectors of disease in the context of the caravans um, that came to the U.S. seeking asylum prior to this pandemic. Now suddenly those same countries who were, uh, had asylum seekers trying to come here are suddenly saying they don't want people from the U.S. to come there. And the, the kind of power dynamic suddenly got reversed and um, you were seeing the, um, also I just looked at a fascinating stat that said that 20% of the COVID-19 cases in Guatemala actually come from U.S. deportees. Um, so many people who were in fact like forcibly removed um, in some cases to Guatemala from U.S. detention facilities or from U.S. prisons. Um, so I think that those cyclical dynamics are really complicated and maybe even more, uh, not as simple as just um, the kind of scapegoating of particular populations. Uh, but I think that that's certainly something to be aware of. And not just in the U.S., I mean, Ote mentioned it, and we've seen it globally. One place I know that's been a big issue is in India when they um, had the lockdown policy announced. There were, I think, upwards of 130 million migrant workers who would normally commute back and forth um, between the city and their villages. And so when they suddenly had to return home, um, I think they faced a lot of issues of being perceived as um, potential peril, uh, sources of peril. And so I think that's been quite an issue there. And I imagine we're seeing that all over the world with migrant labor populations. Um, thanks, Sarah. Uh, can I just ask you to talk a little bit about borders, uh, European borders in terms of like we had become, we were obsessively following Brexit and its politics at the point that this crisis hit. Um, if you just, just talk about the way that the European EU project of, of getting rid of or of diminishing borders has been very much upset by this crisis, hasn't it? Where you've got national governments imposing uh, border controls and then, of course, the whole Brexit thing bubbling under and still moving towards uh, completion of one kind or another. Yeah, um, there's been a very uh, heated uh, debate uh, going on on Twitter, <laughs> which I'm, I'm kind of came off temporarily because of all the heat um, <laughs> um, uh, really about this. Um, and again, I mean, it, it's actually analogous to many of the things we're discussing. Uh, so on the one hand, you have the sort of Europhiles academically um, arguing this is a crisis which has shown the weaknesses, but upon this, the EU will build. And this is an area where there'll be more integration in future. Um, on the other hand, you have those who are more skeptical of the EU, and this is among the academic population, um, who argue, well, this is a sign, the whole thing's going to fail. Um, it's, it's a national interest-based project, and um, you know, this is a huge, I suppose, indictment of the European project. And I think, you know, you're right, I mean, the, I think there is a consensus that the EU did not respond to this coherently or helpfully um, at the start. And that even, you know, up to two weeks ago, in terms of trying to um, devise a strategy to rebuild economies, there was division with particularly the Netherlands being more conservative about um, essentially fiscal expenditure to, to boost economies. Um, so I think it has exposed the weaknesses in the EU. I mean, my, my background um, academically was very much the EU. It was on the impact of the EU on Northern Ireland and on cross-border cooperation. And I suppose I should admit um, that my background would also be very Europhile and I'm very much representative of that uh, group of people. Um, I was educated very much in that way in Trinity, I'd say, as well as an undergrad. So my, my tendency, and theoretically, it would probably stand up that with, with these crises, the EU gradually, but it takes time, does 
identify the gap and build a policy around it. But it has not shown itself to be very impressive about this. And I think looking at this case alone in a snapshot way, it has not been very positive about this. And of course, turning back to other issues of, of um, migration as well, the EU has not behaved very positively about that. And secondly, um, you know, before Italy was already um, very much feeling it was not being treated fairly by the EU in terms of the proportion of migrants it was accepting without help from the EU, without other countries being as helpful um, and, and accepting more migrants. So there have already been issues about that. And then this all fell also around the Italian case in dealing with the virus um, about how much help should the EU give Italy with the Netherlands really stepping back from that. So the idea of a European project, of a European identity, um, and all the things in the 1950s after the Second World War that I think were believed by many elites who founded the EU, a lot of those ideas, a lot of that vision seems to be more absent now and we see it in this crisis. However, I would still believe that there is a push to try and deal with the differences and that succeeded to an extent um, and to um devise a strategy to help economies that will not have of course the the effect um of austerity that will inject money into economies as is needed across the world now to rebuild them so i'm on the positive side for the future of the eu but having said that i can see the the weaknesses um, that have been exposed in this case and as i said in other cases like migration and also austerity towards greece you know there are many criticisms of the approach the eu took towards greece um, and, and the way Greek people suffered. So I think um, to be balanced, yes, to answer Susan's point, it's shown the, the nationalism that exists in the EU when it comes to crises and many issues, that it's not a European federal idea yet, or maybe never will be. But I think also it shows that elites within the EU, and I think increasingly the European Commission, are very aware of, of the need to build a political identity and a, and a more, I suppose, a sense of community across the EU. So I, I would be positive in the future, but how long is the future? That could be 10 years, <laughs> could be five years. So, um, I would like to ask maybe if uh, Sarah, would you like to directly address any questions to Etienne and then maybe Etienne ask, ask something of you in relation to you rather than me uh, intervening in your conversation? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm curious how you see the dialogue between two countries or regions um, in terms of whether you think, um, I mean, I think certainly this, I, I'm trying to be intellectually honest about the fact that my instincts are often, um, you know, I've spent a lot of the last few years thinking about how problematic many of the migration bans that this country has enacted have been. Um, and then wanting to trust the knowledge and insight of public health officials here telling us like this is to have closed borders and realizing I have to sort of challenge my own thinking about that. Um, and so I wonder how you see those two tensions playing out between the desire not to be kind of instituting an anaphobic rhetoric, but then also simultaneously that the desire to acknowledge what public health officials are telling us about the utility of borders in a moment um, like this. I'm still, I ask because I'm still puzzling that through myself. And so I wonder how that's playing out um, in your context or what your thoughts might be on that. 
I missed some of your question because it just broke up momentarily for me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll do the quick repeat, which is I've realized it, to be intellectually honest, the tension that this moment creates for me in thinking about um, as someone who reflexively has been um, quite troubled by a lot of xenophobic um, border closure rhetoric prior to this pandemic um, to realize that as we trust the insights of public health officials who are telling us this is a good moment to have closed borders, how we hold those two tensions, both kind of the public health reality of the utility of nations being able to control their borders on the one hand, and then um, on the other hand, not wanting that to be an excuse to rationalize um, xenophobic approaches to borders and national identity. Have you got that at ten? Okay, yeah. Okay, now. Um, I think it's very sorry. I think it's a fundamental question. Um, I, I think this virus has raised huge challenges for everyone, and definitely for me, intellectually and morally as well. Um, so the public health advice on really, even on lockdown, on on, on you know, keep away from people. Um, whether you're old. My father is 93 and his walk is going up and down the garden, which he is measuring, but he's getting enough exercise. And, you know, at a certain point, it's less severe, obviously, than the cases you are talking about um, or direct provision and, and these cases. But there are issues about the ethics of certain behaviour, which I know is becoming um, a discussion and, and certain policies versus the public health requirements of keeping people alive. So I, I think it's a huge challenge. I'm finding it actually challenging um, to deal with that generally. And then of course, specifically about xenophobia because the public health advice um, in itself, it goes against all the, uh, again, the kind of background I've been brought up with, particularly when I was a PhD student in the nineties and, and all the, the ideas of openness, multiculturalism, um, a sense of community again of helping others where territorial boundaries don't matter but this becomes all very territorially focused about keep the virus out um, you know lock your doors keep yourselves in you know it's it's all against that so i don't know intellectually how to deal with it um i think policymakers don't know really in effect how to deal with it at the moment as susan knows um, the Irish government is deciding, for example, about lockdown, what to do, as many governments are, um, because of weighing up the issues of mental health of older people, etc. And I think your point is, is really analogous about how do we weigh up the necessity of keeping people alive um, versus the necessity of not being xenophobic. And it's a, it's a moral and ethical dilemma, um, which I, I know I... I I feel myself actually, I, I struggle <laughs> with it in different ways because actually um, my son has Down syndrome. So like part of me just wants to just keep him safe. I don't care how. <laughs> um, and that becomes, you know, that down that road, you enter very dubious territory at times. So yeah, I agree and I have no answer. So perhaps the audience will have answers or Susan or Eileen. <laughs> I was just just thinking when you you were talking about the the border issue there. I mean the the border and one of the problems in terms of knowing what the situation is in Ireland is that the data is being collected in completely different ways, north and south of the border. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, we know that there's actually a very high rate of of COVID infection in the southern border counties in Ireland, uh, the the counties in the Republic of Ireland. 
uh, and in the north we don't know if that's the same because they're not collecting as much data in the north and they're not doing as much testing in the north and it's quite a dangerous situation isn't it because it means that we don't know what's going on there uh, the um, one distinguished doctor who's been looking at this, uh, Dr. Gabriel Scully, talked about the North as being like a black hole as far as data is concerned. We're simply not hearing what's happening. And it, it kind of brings home to me the way that in a country like Ireland, especially post Good Friday Agreement, the border isn't a line. It's not a line across the country. It's a region, you know, and people are being given contradictory uh, instruction as to what is safe and unsafe. Uh, within that region, and it's bound to be uh, causing hazard, I think. Yeah, I mean, this occurred early on because in Ireland, schools were closed, and in Northern Ireland, they weren't. So there were issues of, of people traveling, and people, um, you know, there are huge numbers of journeys um, across the border every day to school and work. So the issue there was if they're closed on one side and not in the other, <clears throat> then in Ireland, more people might get the virus because of the different policies um, being followed. So that's one aspect. And I think the issue Susan um, is talking about is that the UK doesn't report deaths in nursing homes. Um, and that, I think, includes Northern Ireland. Is that the case? Maybe I should yeah. check. Whereas Ireland does. So the, the, the number of deaths, how they're being calculated is different. Um, so that creates issues about not knowing exactly what's going on and because, as everyone says, the virus does not have <laughs> borders, um, if there are different policies being followed and the, the border communities are so interdependent um, and, you know, as I said, travel, you know, has, has gone across the borders on a daily basis that that causes a risk. It was interesting though because there was a report in the Irish Times yesterday that the level of cases of the virus just across the border was far higher. I can't remember, was it deaths or the level of cases? Probably both, if that's the case. Um, and there was a question mark, is this because there isn't an all-island approach? But the head of the health service here said it was unlikely to be caused by that. So that was interesting. Uh, Gabriel Scali said it was likely, um, but the head of the health service said it wasn't likely. So again, there's this, uh, I suppose, there's a fear of it being politicised again as well. Um, but I think there is, there is quite a strong argument being made that an all-island approach to an issue like this would make more sense. Um, that if there are these different policies being followed, um, it, it does make it harder, well, it, it will affect the level of cases in Ireland as well. Um, okay. I suppose about contact tracing, I, I would say. That would, that would be a big issue. Okay, um, I think this is a good moment maybe to bring in uh, some of our questions. I see that we've got we've got quite a few questions coming in there. So can I ask, is Jane back? Can we have Jane uh, to moderate some questions? I think I'm back. <laughs> this is Eileen and I think I'm doing it. Um, thank you. Thank you all, all three of you. This was wonderful. And um, so, I, but we do have a, a long line of questions at this point. So um, I'm going to start with the first one that we received, which is from um, Eve Patton. And Eve is um, at the Trinity College Dublin English Department and um, at also about to, the newly appointed director I hear at the Trinity Long Room Hub. So thank you, Eve. And I look forward to working with you in the coming months. Um, she asks, and this is a question to all the panelists, to what extent has the pandemic accentuated the pre-existing discrepancy between national 
government rhetoric and local or grassroots activism, which, as she points out, often seems to uh, able to work across borders, the activism and grassroots, um, grass, sorry, grassroots activism. So it's for all three of you. Um, okay, uh, maybe uh, we'll take a second question so we can have a look at two, two questions. We, we can do that, we can do that together though. Let me see, um, I'm trying to kind of group them in, in terms of their, um, the category, but let's, I'll just go to the second one, which is, is from Melody Barnes. And Melody's at the University of uh, Virginia and is a partner with, um, on the project that Jane mentioned, um, the Zagoria project. Um, uh, about participatory and deliberative democracy. Um, she points out that Sarah offered an historical and current day perspective on the challenge to immigrants in the United States. And she wonders whether history offers a guideline to the, US, to the way the US could move from deeply troubling policies during a time of crisis to more progressive policy. And if there are hopeful examples, do you think that they are applicable given the deeply troubling U.S. policy and rhetoric prior to COVID-19? So it's both a specific question for Melody, but I'm, I mean, so from Melody to Sarah, but I'm sure any, she'd be happy to have anybody else comment as well as the, the broader question from Eve. Okay, thanks very much, Eileen. Well, maybe since that second question was directly to Sarah, Sarah, do you want to make a start on, on one or both of those yeah. questions, which are actually quite linked? Yes, I'm not known for being optimistic. <laughs> so I really appreciate the spirit of this question to dig deeper to find like, where can we find some hope? Because the first place in my brain went was simply to more historical examples of what's problematic and the ways in which this administration is fishing through history to find ways to legitimate a pre-existing agenda, which I suppose is something we all do. <laughs> uh, we're all kind of plucking through history to find the things that vindicate our pre-existing intellectual positions. But um, one very good example that comes to mind that can transition me to something optimistic um, is actually the, the public charge rules, which some of you may be familiar with in US history. Um, Public charge was a notion that I, I believe it emerged, uh, I think, in the 1920s, certainly out of that eugenicist of um, thinking about ways to um, block certain streams of in, uh, immigrants who were perceived as um, problematic and, again, as disease potentials. Um, they, the public charge rule basically said that people who had taken any kind of government support or government um, subsidies or who may become economically reliant on the government once they arrive could be um, barred from citizenship. And uh, this administration kind of revived the public charge uh, rules and said they would be enforcing those. Um, and it's led to a lot of fear in immigrant communities, even of the possibility of seeking help, um, people who might need to um, go to food banks or to seek ways of getting their children uh, health care or afraid to do so um, in this current environment. Um, but I bring that up because this administration very explicitly said when the virus began, they actually had USCIS, um, one of our immigration agencies essentially say, we're not going to be enforcing public charge. Uh, but the reason this comes up as both a, a example of why some of the his troubling histories are being revived. Uh, the reason it comes up as an example of a potentially optimistic uh, angle on that is that I actually think this moment is really vindicating 
um, a lot of the grassroots movements discussions about universal health care in our country. And that's one of the big kind of geographic distances um, some of us on this call here have is that you know, I live in a country where we do not have universal health care and where for years many people have been saying that, you know, not just undocumented communities are unable to seek healthcare in the moments they need it, but also so many other um, people in this country and what a public health threat that poses. And so I think the momentary pause on enforcing public charge um, is just a teeny, teeny little, um, little silver lining, but I think it actually could, this moment could pave the way for a much bigger intervention in the dialogue around universal health care, not just as it pertains to immigrants, but as it pertains to, to everyone. And to show, I mean, it's, this is the definition, the essence of the idea of interconnectedness uh, that we can't just otherwise not think that the ramifications will come back on us. Okay, thanks. So Sarah has searched and searched and found a little slim, slender silver lining, but Etienne, you've said that you are an optimist. Uh, can you give us an optimist's response to the <laughs> questions? Oh gosh, I'm not sure I'm still an optimist. I should be careful. I have to think. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I thought, thank you to Eve for the question, which was for both of us. I suppose that's the one that's relevant to me. And congratulations to Eve. I'm delighted um, at her appointment. Um, on local activism versus national government policy in Ireland, I, I would say um, that national and local have come together about this. I, I do think there's been a, a synergy and strong support um, for the policy being followed. Um, so it, it's been very, that is optimistic. It's, it's been very positive in that way. Um, tangentially, in, in terms of the health system as well, um, as some of you, if not all of you know, Ireland has um, had huge difficulties in its health system in terms of waiting lists and various indicators were one of the worst, if not the worst in Europe on various criteria. Um, and it's, it's been a constant crisis. Um, and it's really in this crisis, it's performed extremely well. And there's been a, a move or a, a policy that everything, essentially we have a public health service when it comes to the virus. Um, and all but essential private procedures have been deferred. So it's been extremely positive um, in terms of our health system as well. And I, I would say that that kind of concept has been positive. And perhaps for Northern Ireland, because a very big issue in Northern Ireland about attitudes to unification, it's probably not as big as the political objections, but a practical objection has been that the health service has been so weak. And in Northern Ireland, of course, they have the NHS, the, the UK health service. So it's been positive to see our health service and our staff and retired staff come together like this. And local and national, I think, has operated very closely together in this way. I mean, we're a smaller country, obviously, but that hasn't stopped divides in the past. Um, in terms of Northern Ireland, it's much more complex, I'd argue, which Susan and um, I say Eve would also would also know um, that what is grassroots and what is civil society is is a big question. Firstly, so on the one hand, we have the um, the sort of, uh, I suppose, maybe, what's the word, non-aligned space in the middle, which is increasing. So the number of people who don't feel they're British or Irish is increasing, and often younger people feel that way. And often there are civil society groups working in that space, and they're, they're very non-ideological. Um, so, you know, as regards the virus, they, they, of course, would be less likely to become politicised, less likely to react in any kind of jingoistic way against either Britain or against Ireland. 
Um, on the other hand, in Northern Ireland and civil society, you know, there are connections in civil society to each group. So there will be a nationalist civil society and a unionist civil society. And in that sense, um, for, for that kind of pocket, I would argue that it's, it's not necessarily always positive if there's an active civil society in that way, in the way that we think of it, uh, most people are, that I would think of it. Um, but there is that space in Northern Ireland which is developing, which is more neutral um, and which is more pragmatic. Um, and I think in that sense, the virus would, you know, the responses to the virus um, give space to those groups um, to eschew the sort of nationalist labels or the unionist labels. Um, but I'd also be wary, I was just at a UCL um, meeting for a project I'm involved in um, on uh, really on issues around calling a referendum on unification, not in favour of unification, but what are the issues around that legally. Um, and that issue came up from my former supervisor, Brendan O'Leary, who's in um, Philadelphia now, um, about civil society in Northern Ireland being quite a problematic concept sometimes because, you know, you don't know whether it is political or ideological or not. Um, so I think it's been positive and I think along the border it's positive. Um, and again, I, I, maybe Susan and Eve would know more about this, but I think along the border there is a positivity around that, about dealing with problems practically and not getting involved in the old debates. But I think it's not necessarily always a positive thing either. So. So I'm gonna, we've got numbers of questions on the, uh, both from Facebook and the Q&A, and I'm going to be grouping, thanks to Ellie, um, two of them together. One is from George Clutterbuck on Facebook, who asks, may the members share their thoughts on the European response to COVID-19 and the refugee crisis? For example, the EU initiative to relocate 1,600 children. In the context of the 74,000 plus immigrants and refugees that arrived in Greece in 2019, this seemed to fall so short. And the second question from Natalia Lago, who's a, I'm glad you're in the audience, um, Natalia. She's an anthropologist at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, and she'd like to ask Sarah specifically if she can comment on whether and how activists and social movements related to migrants and the prison population have been dealing with this growing closure of borders, prisons, and, and immigration detention centers. I think we have we have touched uh, we've touched on a on a few of those questions. If I could just go back just a moment to the previous question, I I think it's really important, and I'd love to hear the views uh, certainly of of Sarah on this because I think it's an area that she has done work on. Uh, just on that last question of of local activism, I mean certainly one of the areas in Ireland in which local activism is very cross-border and very untainted by sectarianism is the, the women's movement and specifically um, the, the movement of people trying to stop violence against women, which is a huge issue in this pandemic because obviously a lot of men are now back in their homes with the women and children who they are, are dominating and abusing. And uh, I think that what has been shown by the, the pandemic is the way that a very harsh light has fallen on inequality and lack of provision. You know, so for example, there's large parts of Ireland where there are no women's refuges. There's nowhere for people to go. And yes, the government, you know, to, to follow on from what it is, the governments north and south have been trying to step in and uh, 
enact measures which will help here, but these are issues which have been being pointed out for many, many decades by feminists. This, uh, the prevalence of gender-based violence and the absence of measures to stop it. And now we're in a situation where it's extremely dangerous for a lot of women and children in this lockdown situation where they haven't got access to even the safety of their own family networks outside of their domestic home. So just to say that as my contribution to the previous question, but just to move on to, well, actually, Sarah, could you comment just quite briefly in relation to that in the US context? The question yeah, of domestic yeah, I think violence. You raise a really critical addition to these really fantastic questions. I think certainly thinking about the gender-based violence issues, we all know that certainly mm. among the population of Central American um, asylum seekers from the Northern Triangle who've been coming here, a very, very significant um, portion of that group is actually fleeing gender-based violence to begin mm -hmm. with, and then facing more sexual violence along the journey, and then facing more sexual violence once they're in these migrant protection protocols or in the camps waiting for their asylum proceedings. Um, and now we have this extra layer that you just described of those who may have already been particularly worried about seeking help, um, people who are in uh, in the interior of the country in the U.S. who may be undocumented. And um, we, at Columbia, we actually did a team project right after Trump's election where we talked to um, people, women at domestic violence shelters and a lot of the directors of the shelters and uh, looked at some of the police data around women seeking help from shelters um, after the election in immigrant communities. And there was a really, really precipitous drop in sexual assault reporting rates, in domestic violence reporting rates due to um, concerns about immigration enforcement um, and women's concerns that if they came forward, they could be deported. And so I have to imagine a lot of this is really compounding um, those pre-existing vulnerabilities. So I think really what we're seeing in almost every social category is that you know, pre-existing vulnerabilities mm -hmm. are only being pushed um, to or past their, their limits. But I also want to say, because this question also had a hint of optimism around kind of grassroots movements, um, I have, I continue to be amazed by the leadership of people in detention who have found ways to get their voices out. And there's a lot of grassroots groups like uh, Raices um, and other groups in the U.S. who have been documenting cases of women on the inside of immigration detention centers who have led hunger strikes, um, who have spoken out. This is true of women in prison as well. There's been a lot of really incredible, very uh, systematic organizing of detained people to get their messages out. I just actually received some letters last week and recorded phone calls with people who are detained. In this case, men who are in the pretrial detention context. So people who have not actually even been convicted of any crime yet, who are literally in the US in jails simply because they cannot afford to pay bail um, for cases that have not yet been heard. Those are people who um, put together letters that they want journalists to publish and a lot of outlets have been publishing kind of those voices from the inside and some of them have had an effect like one of the people I spoke to um, two weeks ago he was detained he put together this protest letter with I think 20 different guys in his prison dormitory about the fact that they didn't have hand sanitizer they weren't allowed to social, socially distance they weren't allowed to have masks and um, after their voices got out the prison um, or the, sorry the jail did end up um, 
providing some of those things and ended up releasing the guy that I spoke to. Um, so the last quick thing I'll say on that is there has been a pretty remarkable set of alliances in the criminal justice context that are in some cases very unexpected. So um, there are district attorneys who for years have been pushing that um, people um, can't get out of pretrial detention um, unless they can pay these really steep bails. Suddenly, some are reducing their populations by 40%. Even one county here in Washington state reduced their jail population by 75% to prevent the spread of the virus. Um, and some governors have taken action um, organizing um, some uh, at some um, district attorneys and public defenders and pretrial service groups have actually organized mass releases. So I, I do want to acknowledge that there is uh, there are unusual alliances happening and there's incredible leadership happening from inside these facilities too. And uh, just to go to yourself, Etienne, now if you could have a look at the questions from George and Natalia uh, in relation to the refugee crisis and activists and social movements. Uh, well, firstly, I feel ashamed. I didn't think of the women's movements um, in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. Um, but in Northern Ireland, um, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious to everyone, but there was a huge force or a big force in the peace process and in the Good Friday Agreement negotiations mm -hmm. and after. And it's very much associated with not having a sectarianized or ide ideological response politically um, to these issues. So I, I feel, as I said, ashamed. At least I'm in an all all women panel, <laughs> that marginally makes up, <laughs> but, um, but I am ashamed not to think of that. And I also just wanted to pick up on all the other issues. I think as Sarah said, um, these dilemmas again between public health versus um, situations of individual groups and minorities. So those who are being emotionally and physically or and both physically abused um, and the issues around that, as Susan said, um, has been a big issue. I think on, on the EU and refugees, I think I did probably deal with that, as Susan said, probably already because I think the, the EU did fall very short in terms of its um, dealings with Greece um, and dealings with the migration issue. And I think again, you know, we see the limitations in how the EU has behaved. And some of these issues, it's not the cause of Brexit, but some of these issues are probably relevant to understanding the Brexit debate as well, um, you know, because they're, they're weaknesses in, in the EU's approach. So I would agree with that. Um, and on, you know, yeah, I'm in civil society, I think I've probably dealt with that as well. There are pockets where it's very positive and, and women's groups, and um, most definitely, it, it's not necessarily always in Northern Ireland. It depends on the groups, I'd argue, but there are, there is a space where it's been positive. And in Ireland as well. And one of the things I think to pick up on what Sarah said, in terms of optimism, while every government has got this wrong, you know, they've got some things right, some things wrong, and some more than others, the crisis has shown the ability of groups to speak out. I mean, sometimes maybe a little bit belatedly, maybe not early on, but I think increasingly in Ireland, a spotlight is being thrown on these groups with, who, that are particularly vulnerable or particularly in danger. I think there is more attention being paid. So it, it's also a triumph of democracy that that can happen as well. And I cannot remember, I've been trying to remember, and it's an American academic has been doing a report or an analysis of which countries have been the most successful in dealing with the virus globally and there is a trade-off between human rights so that the ones which have had more of the, the more autocratic human right traditions are doing better on the public health side uh, in some ways so that kind of highlights these issues as well um, but i do think there are positive signs i don't know the u.s context as much so it's so interesting hearing sarah but here that you you hear criticisms and in the uk 
of the policy and voices being spoken increasingly and that were being neglected. So. Okay, thanks. Um, Eileen, do you want to give us another couple of questions, please? Sure. So there, there are two more questions about health, and then we'll move on, I think, specifically, and then we'll move on to something else. One is from Tiago um, Moyano, who's a, a PhD candidate at the University of Sao Paulo, and he asks about um, if you could talk a bit more about the issue of universal health care and its relationship to democracy. So in the context of the U.S., you know, what kinds of access immigrants may have to healthcare facilities and, and as opposed to in the context of the UK, especially after Boris Johnson's apparent, you know, born again sentiment about the relationship to the National Health Service. Um, and also um, Ava Cam at um, Columbia, she's a, a public health student in epidemiology here. She, she, she proposes that public health purview also encompasses the mental health effects of xenophobia, differential access to healthcare treatment, and other non-viral threats to health that includes xenophobic immigration policies, as Sarah pointed out. She's wondering what the panelists think about how public health care can help combat nationalism and some of the issues you talked about. Okay, two more really interesting questions. Um, Sarah, would you like to, to start with the, the question of universal health care? Absolutely, yeah. I, I should acknowledge that that is not my area of expertise, but I do think, um, I think there's been a lot of really complex debate around who will qualify for different forms of, um, of stimulus and different interventions that are being made at this moment. So I think we have a strange system here where so much depends on the particular geography in which you live, even in, in, internal to the US um, in terms of what you qualify for um, and what you may feel safe seeking. So Trump keeps harping upon this notion of sanctuary cities, those being places that, um, you know, where ostensibly um, law enforcement will not turn over undocumented people to the federal government for deportation um, has, and has at a moment even threatened that some of the resources around this virus will be allocated only to those places that are not sanctuary cities. So um, I think questions about who will be entitled to some of the resources to help um, recover from this, both in terms of their access to healthcare, but also all the other ways in which people are getting profoundly devastated. Because I think we also have to recognize public health is interwoven with um, economics in ways that, you know, certainly because we have so many low-income uh, undocumented workers who help keep our critical systems afloat, including, in fact, our, our um, public health systems um, and our grocery stores, um, and um, our deliver like our fast food delivery, all of those people who are incredibly hyper exposed to the virus at this moment are also some of the people who have the least access to good health care. Um, I think another of the issues we're seeing is around uh, the upcoming Supreme Court case around DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, I think another interesting dimension of the healthcare debate that's become clear through DACA is that we actually have a lot of um, young people who have been allowed to stay um, in the country due to DACA, um, who, uh, whose parents brought them here as kids, um, as undocumented immigrants, who now play really critical roles in our healthcare system, who are now potentially facing 
deportation as well. Um, so I just wanted to flag that issue because in the coming weeks, we're going to be seeing a Supreme Court decision about DACA um, and what its fate will be. And I think that's another one of those key kind of under-discussed issues in terms of how immigrant rights are bound up in um, healthcare rights. Um, so those are just two th things that come to mind, but I'm sure there's so much more to the question of um, who has access to healthcare and how in this moment. So I'll turn it over to Tang because I'm not sure if you have um, more to add about um, healthcare in the UK context. I think that Etienne already actually spoke about this in terms of, of Ireland. I was wondering maybe if Etienne could move on to the, the second question, the question about mental health implications mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. these issues. Because we're coming close yeah, to the end of the seminar. Um, not my area as well, like, like <laughs> universal health isn't uh, my area either. Um, but I think what I was thinking when that question was posed was, um, in a way, I, we should specify that it's not a public health priority versus the others. Of course, these are dilemmas within public health policy about uh, dealing with the virus versus mental or psychological implications um, related to xenophobia or abuse or isolation and um, all these different issues. So it's trade-offs within the public health community as well. Um, and I think we, we've touched upon that also. I mean, I, I think the, you know, how there is a question about how how long or to what extent are the public health priorities around the virus compatible with other public health um, priorities and outcomes that are also essential, um, such as mental health, to do with whatever the issues, um, the issues of, of migrant groups, of travelers, um, of the elderly, um, or of those who are abused. So that there's so many dilemmas um, within the policy community some things can be targeted. So for example, travelers being discriminated against, that should be, hopefully, again, question mark, uh, targeted. There are other issues which are harder to target about mental health. Um, xenophobia, similarly, generally, you would hope should be targeted. Um, there are ways around it, but there are other issues which aren't. So I, I think really my, my response to the question about that uh, from the Columbia person was really that you know, to, to make it clear that these are priorities within the public health community to try and get the balance right. And for the World Health Organization as well, I would argue. So. Okay, thank you. Um, Eileen, uh, would we be able to fit in another quick? Yeah, there, there are two here that are um, both basically about electoral politics and, and the coming, in one case, the coming election in the United States. Um, this one's from uh, Rory Montgomery, who's the uh, formerly of the Department of Foreign Affairs in, um, in Ireland and now at the Trinity Long Room Hub. Um, and he mentions, points out that the pandemic coincides with the 2020 presidential election in the US and the long post-election government formation process in Ireland, which is leaving a caretaker government make profoundly important decisions about significant political accountability, including whether the Dale is not sitting regularly. Um, he points out that the Polish government is being criticized for pressing ahead with the presidential election on May 10th. So the question is, what are the challenges to accountability in electoral processes and how are they to be balanced with public health protection? And then related to that, Bill Emmett, also from Trinity Long Room Hub, points out that the global, the pandemic is global um, and 
the shock of it has been global and unpredictable, and that it may prove neutral in electoral terms and in views of government. However, the economic consequences and aftershocks may prove more divisive, especially concerning the pace and distribution of withdrawal of welfare support after the lockdown. How do the panelists expect this to develop on the island of Ireland and in the US? So those are pretty huge questions. Uh, uh, will we go to, to Sarah first? Do you want to try and tackle both of those, Sarah? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Absolutely. Because we so are coming to the end. They're very rich questions. And yeah. certainly, I'm sure we'll see a lot of fantastic writing and inquiry about this. Um, you know, this pandemic has momentarily given a little bit of pause to the constantly election-obsessed part of the American psyche, but now I think we're also beginning to ask even the most functional questions about you know, how does an election take place amidst a pandemic? And I think in the US that's a doubly profound crisis because we've already had such significant, significant issues with uh, voter rights, voter suppression, and certainly seen that um, happening in communities that also happen to be most vulnerable to the virus. So for instance, I think we've seen really um, systemic and alarming issues regarding voter rights in Black communities across the US. Um, and we've also now seen um, really clear data that Black communities are also suffering from the highest fatality rates uh, from COVID-19 and some of the highest rates of distrust um, of the medical system due to a very deep history. Um, and I think all of those things are going to come together in ways that could be really problematic when we think about the disputes happening around voter access and some of the disputes that have occurred around um, you know, the right to mail in ballots, for instance, and how hard it has become for many Americans to vote, even in totally normal non-pandemic times. I mean, I was in Oklahoma in the last election, standing outside in long lines um, in a black neighborhood where people had to wait you know, six hours, elderly folks in the rain, just to be able to to cast their vote. And so I worry, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, what is that um, going to look like from a um, from an access and equity perspective? I think that's really alarming. Um, and then the economic effects, um, I guess we'll just go back to the, the point about um, pre-existing vulnerabilities being exacerbated, because I think, you know, this has also laid bare some of the huge problems in the US economy with the lack of social safety nets for those who've been pushed into, um, the gig economies. Um, that's another area where there's a lot of dispute about who will and will receiving some of the benefits of the interventions around the stimulus and otherwise. Um, but I think we see a lot of overlap between those who are in jobs that do not have pensions, jobs that do not have health care, jobs that do not come with basic benefits, and workers who happen to be you know, already living on the edge and many of them being um, undocumented or just immigrant workers in general. Um, so I think those are some of the big questions that come up for me in terms of both the electoral and the economic context. Itain, I'll turn it to you. can you just give us a couple of minutes on, yeah. on your <laughs> response to that? And then we'll oh, have that to <laughs> It's such huge questions. And I very briefly want to respond to Lilith Acadia, a question just about the authoritarianism argument. It wasn't mine. It was just research going on about human rights, countries and traditions of human rights authoritarianism being better at dealing with it, she quite, um, you know, quite uh, sensibly contradicted that looking at countries where the record like New Zealand were doing very well without those uh, 
those traditions. So it was just research I was uh, quoting rather than believing. And I don't can't, as I said, remember the author. As regards um, the first point on democracy, yes, it's again another trade-off and another issue though, and though not to the extent I was implying by my comment earlier about the human rights issue. Ireland has a specific problem because after our election, there wasn't a clear majority and we still don't have a government. We have a caretaker government, of course, but not, um, we haven't a deal yet. I think we soon will. So there is, and that issue has been raised uh, very often and increasingly by politicians in the Irish system and by the media. The Dáil is meeting, um, however, but the scrutiny, the amount of time given for scrutiny um, has been very brief because of the virus and, of course, the social uh, distancing, so it's not as if there are very many people um, involved. But I've been quite positive about that too, so here I am being an optimist again, um, that I, I think there has been, I think in the early days, as I said, of the crisis, there was a huge, let's support the government. You know, it was a very kind of like, you know, I don't know the word is, community effort to use that word. I think now, and, and the Taoiseach has said it, this is the harder time. You know, this is when there's more questioning, but that, that initial period um, has, has moved. And I do think there is scrutiny. I, I think there's increasingly scrutiny from other politicians. There've been question marks over issues and um, direct provision, maybe not as much as there should be, but it has been, uh, it's being brought up in the media at least, um, and also issues around um, vulnerable people, etc. Um, so I think there are more, I think there, there is scrutiny, less so in the parliament than we might want, but I think it is occurring. I think we are in a, you know, special situation with our government at the moment. I think the media actually, um, again, increasingly has, has been pro providing that role of scrutiny. Um, again, at the beginning, I would say a bit less so. I think there was this, as I said, shocked reaction and let's just row behind the government. I do think there's more questioning now. And in the UK, I think it's been very, very clear questioning from certain newspapers and journalists. I mean, maybe with the Boris Johnson government, you know, it's uh, easy to find the gaps to do that, but there has been clear questioning and that's a form of scrutiny, although not perhaps in the way Rory means. Um, Bill's maybe we'd better... Um... Oh. <laughs> just leave, leave the economic aftershock question because it's too big a question to, to rush an answer on, isn't it? So thank you very much, Shatane, and thank you very much to Sarah. I think everybody will agree. Both of you have been absolutely magnificent. And I'm just going to hand back to Eileen now to conclude uh, the, today's event and maybe uh, let people know about some of the other uh, events that are coming up. Great. Thanks so much, Susan. Um, and thank you, Etain and Sarah and, and to Susan for this wonderful, really incredibly insightful and thoughtful discussion. Um, I also want to say a special congratulations to Susan, who's I've just heard has been awarded the Arts Council Northern Ireland Major Individual Award of 2020. And so congratulations um, there, Susan. The next workshop in the series um, is on marginalized groups and it will take place next Wednesday, the 6th of May at 4.30 p.m. Dublin, Ireland time, British summer time, and 11.30 a.m. on New York or East Coast um, uh, daylight time. You'll, all of you who have been registered for this um, session, I believe will receive an email with a unique registration link um, that'll be sent out to you again shortly and to only you, so don't share it. And anyone else you know who wants to um, register should get in touch with the Trinity Longhoom Hub um, and we'll see that that happens.
Um, there'll be more today, details about the, oh, I've just got a message about you, where you can register. Um, and Ellie will send it out to Paul. I guess she already has. Um, there are more details about the whole series, um, Rethinking Democracy in the Age of, in an age of pandemic, um, the websites for the Trinity Long Room Hub and the Heyman Center for the Humanities. Um, the Trinity Long Room Hub also offers a weekly hub uh, blog about with further reflections on the coronavirus epidemic and on the humanities in general. Um, please check that out as well as the, what our section Humanities from Home on the Haven Center website. Um, so I think that's it. I think we're out of time. Um, but, and I think Ellie will un unmute the room so that we can all actually clap um, and show our round of appreciation uh, or our appreciation and a round of applause for our wonderful speakers. So. See you next week and stay well. Thank you. The hub is Thanks a community. Book and print cultures, stamping towards the history of the Taiwanese Library, as well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral City. The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.